You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg coming at you today. The big news in Israel, of course, is the judicial reform. They passed the reasonableness law, which is part of the process to weaken the judicial dictatorship in Israel. And all the newspaper articles and all the talking heads are talking about one thing, how the country's going to go to hell now that 30% of Israelis are considering leaving the country amid this judicial upheaval. And the Times of Israel states that almost 70% of Israel startups are acting to shift funds and relocate due to the judicial shakeup. This is what it says in the article. Almost 70% of Israeli startups are taking active steps to pull money and shift parts of their businesses outside the country due to the uncertainty created around the proposed judicial overhaul. The findings of the survey showed that 68% of Israeli startups have started to take legal and financial steps, including the withdrawal of cash reserves, moving their headquarters outside of Israel, etc., etc. So there's a lot of news of that kind. And then you have all kinds of news items about the IDF. Here's another headline from the one of the leftist rags here. IDF says that the battle readiness is becoming impacted as reservists decamp en masse. That is so many soldiers and reservists, they wanna decamp, they wanna hang up their shoes, so much so that we're not battle ready. That means we're vulnerable now to being attacked by other countries. We just don't have the army in place. They're all deserting. Why? Because of the judicial reform. And besides that, of course, there's a lot of mass civil disobedience and that also weakens the country. So a lot of people are getting real nervous about this. For sure, the media overstates, overestimates, exaggerates the numbers. But even if it was as the media says, that you have this mass protest and the whole country is going to crumble now. But we have to understand that there's no such thing as a revolutionary change or any kind of revolution without paying some kind of price. So of course, when we're making this major overhaul to remove the leftists from their power, there's going to be repercussions. Of course, you're going to pay some kind of price. But the point is that if you don't do it, then you'll pay a different kind of price. We'll pay the price of remaining in the same rut, the price of failure and defeat, and the knowledge that we were afraid to take the risk. We can't just be passive and let the media scare us and let the leftists continue running the country. You know, it's like during the days of Samson. You know, during the days of the Judge Samson, the tribe of Yehuda, they turned them over to the Philistines. They turned them over and they said to him, Samson, why are you provoking the Philistines? And they said to him, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? Don't you know what Samson, they rule over us. Sit quietly. That's what it says in the book of Judges. So the thing is, if you don't want change because there are risks involved and you're afraid of the Philistines and the Hellenists, then you're going to remain a slave to the Philistines and the Hellenists. We just went through a Tisha B'Av, which commemorated the destruction of the temples and the rebellion against the Romans, which was called the Merida Gadol, the Great Merid, the Jews fought the Romans to the bitter end, and it was absolutely brutal. And after they were defeated, they rebelled again 60 years later with Bar Kokhva. Why? Why did they take these risks? They got themselves killed for it. Because the Romans were not only cruel, but they enacted decrees against Torah. So the Jews resisted. They could have just sit quietly and obey the Romans, but they understood that without the Torah and without the temple, life has no meaning to it. So sometimes you have to pay a price. 
And if you're not willing to do that, and if you're not willing to pay any price, then know that your life has no meaning. Because if you have nothing to fight for, then you have nothing to die for, then you have nothing to live for. And in the end, there'll be no memory of you. Who do we remember? We remember those who fought for their principles. We remember Metityahu, who struck down the Greek soldier and the Hellenist Jew sacrificing a pig on the altar. He started a revolution. He paid a price. He had to go into hiding. His entire life changed. His sons got killed. He had a good life up to then, but he did it for a greater goal. He realized that life's not worth living if you have to live it that way. And so if you want to advance and make progress, you're going to have backslides at the beginning. Any revolution, any big change, you have to throw out the old guard and there's going to be repercussions. Like when Moses smote the Egyptian, he paid a price. He had to go into hiding for 40 years. And then he came to Paro the first time and he made it worse for the Jews at the beginning. They had to slave even harder when Moses showed up the first time. And the Jewish leadership was angry with Moses. They said, what are you doing? You're making it worse. And he was making it worse. But that's how change is. Any change has to happen that way. Moses, he was the new leadership. So what we have to do, and this applies to today, of course, you say goodbye to the old guard, to the old leadership. Thanks for your service. Up till now, it's been great, but we're moving forward now. Because we're not here to establish a state that's some model Western democracy or some high-tech nation. We didn't come back 2,000 years to show how we can live in coexistence with Arabs and, and be woke or to create some poor man's you know, carbon copy of Manhattan. We didn't come back for that. We didn't come back to be Hebrew-speaking Gentiles. We came back to establish the third Jewish commonwealth run by God's law and to take that law upon ourselves and to be a light unto the nations, or Goyim. That's what we're here for. That doesn't mean we can't have high tech and startups and all that, but that's not our purpose. That's not what should be making us proud. You know, it's like people being proud that Sandy Koufax was Jewish or Albert Einstein was Jewish. That's not what's supposed to make us proud that we're great in high tech. The Japanese are also good in high tech. And for every Sandy Koufax, there's a Nolan Ryan. Now, the thing that people are talking about all the time because of the nine days and because of the judicial reform debate the whole thing of unity and avatrinam, and we got to get together on this. And God forbid we have a civil war, brother against brother. That's the worst possible thing. And the calls for achdus, it's across the board. Unity and shalom, that's what we have to strive for. Now, many are warning that maybe a civil war is imminent. And the newspapers are talking about that. They say 56% of the Jews in Israel, they fear a civil war amid the social and political crisis. Now, there's no doubt the left admits it. They're pushing for a civil war. I mean, listen to Olmart and Barak, those two old farts. And what's the right doing? The right, they're calling for unity. The left hates our guts and we're going to love them to death. We're going to love them into submission, right? We're going to smother them with until they don't know what hit them. Now, the thing is that the term civil war, it's like a soundbite. It's like a buzzword. What we're talking about is Jew fighting Jew. That doesn't sound as bad as civil war. Well, maybe it does. But the point I want to make is this. When we hear the word civil war, we react in a knee-jerk reaction. And we speak from our gut. We react from emotion. But you can't. Because the fact is, Jew fighting Jew, it's nothing new. It's happened before in our history. It's all over the Bible. So we have to look at it from an objective, godly point of view and not get caught up in these narratives of avat chinam and achdus at all costs. Because the Torah, the Tanakh, that's our guide. 
Now, what does it say about civil war in the Torah? Well, when the Jews sinned in the golden calf, the Levites killed 3,000 Jews. That was the right thing to do, obviously. And when Moses blessed the tribe of the Levites, he gave them great accolades precisely on that, that they were prepared to kill members of their own family in order to defend God's honor. You could check out that last bracha to Levi in the last portion of the Torah. So that's the Torah. But let's fast forward to the book of Judges. The end of the book of Judges, you got a huge civil war, a massive one. All the tribes go to battle against the tribe of Benjamin. And God, he sanctions it. So again, I'm not judging either way if it's good or bad. First, I want to explain that it happens and it happened. And we want to know what the sages say about it. But first, let's go to a couple other civil wars. Let's go to the book of Kings. By the way, I'm going to plug my class, Bible classes by Lenny Goldberg. Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. We learn the book of Shmuel. We learn the book of Kings. Now, if you go to the book of Kings, there's nothing but wars between the two kingdoms. The minute there's a split between the kingdom of Judea and the kingdom of Israel, you have Rechavam, son of Shlomo, fighting Yeravam and Avat, the king of the 10 tribes. The next generation, you have wars between the two kings, the king of Yehuda versus the king of Israel. Both Jews, of course. And then you have some brutal wars between King Asa, the king of Yehuda, and King Basha, the king of Israel. As a matter of fact, it says twice in scripture, and there was war between Asa and Basha all the time. It says that twice. Asa was the king of Yehuda. Basha was the king of Israel. We're talking about Jews going to war all the time. So it's not something foreign. It's not something that never happened. All you have to do is pick up the Bible and read it. I'm not trying to put a spin on it or anything like that. Now, what did the Mepharshim say about the war between Asa and Basha? They all say the same thing. Well, if you look at the Radak and the Abarbanel, they all say the same thing. They justify it. They say like this, check out the commentaries. Because Asa was righteous and Basha was evil, Asa went to war against him because the kingdom of Israel was evil and engaged in all kind of idol worship. So Asa was right to go to war with him. Now, what's interesting is that in the next generation, the son of Asa, his name was Yoshaphat, he took on the policy of appeasement and he made peace with Ahab. Ahab was the king of the 10 tribes of Israel and the Shomron and Yoshaphat was the king of Yehuda. And if you look at the book of Kings, you see a couple of chapters where Yoshaphat and Ahab are like brothers. Brothers, they fight together. And they hang out together. And Yoshaphat, the righteous king, even says to Ahav, who asks Yoshaphat to join him in a war against Syria. What does Yoshaphat answer? Kamoni kamocha, me and you are the same. My horses are your horses. My people are your people. So it sounds really nice. Yoshaphat is going for unity with Ahab. But unfortunately, the prophets rebuke Yoshaphat severely for joining up with Ahab. But why? Isn't unity a good thing? So we have to know when is unity the right way to go and when it's not the right way to go. The sages give us direction in this. And before I give the answer, let me give two more examples that really make it concrete. In the second temple period, you had the Maccabees, Jews, Torah Jews, fighting the Hellenists. They were like the leftist Jews today. The Maccabees went to war against the Hellenists. And we have a holiday commemorating that. It's called Hanukkah. You know, the one that comes during Christmas. So that was a good thing, right? A couple hundred years later, when the Jews went to war against the Romans, the Jews lost that war. And the sages say it was because Sinat Chinam, there was hatred amongst Jews. So what's the difference? Why should war between Jews in the days of the Romans 
bring about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, when a civil war amongst Jews in the days of the Greeks, the Maccabees, then it was a good thing and it brought about the purification of the temple and the building of Jerusalem. How does that work? The difference is this. When the Maccabees were fighting the Hellenists, the Hellenists were against Hashem. They wanted to erase Torah from the agenda and become Hellenists and Hellenized society. It would have been the end of Judaism if they had their way. So you got to go to war. But in the great revolt against the Romans 200 years later, the Jews who fought one another, they were all God-fearing Jews, basically. The whole machloket there, the whole dispute there was, who's going to spearhead the merit? Who's going to spearhead the rebellion? Who's going to lead it? That's Sinat Chinam, because they're fighting more for ego and power, and that's forbidden. Now, the same thing happened in yet another civil war that occurred in our history, and I'm talking about the clash between the house of David and the house of Saul. After Saul fell in battle, it took seven years before David could become the king of all of Israel. And during that time, there was a civil war. We have Avner Ben-Ner, Saul's captain of the host, going at it against Yov ben Surya, David's captain, and Jews are getting killed left and right on the pools of Givon. You can check out that episode in Shmuel Bet chapter 2. It's a bloody civil war. And scripture describes it as Kashav bitter war between the house of David and the house of Saul. Now, it wasn't bitter from the point of view of casualties. Yeah, there were casualties, but there weren't massive casualties when Avner's men and Yov's men went at it. So why was it considered bitter? Because it was Jew against Jew. And this was Sinat Chinam. Because what are they fighting over? Who's going to rule? Who's going to lead the Jewish people? Those are the kind of wars amongst Jews we want to avoid. Avner, the son of Ner, is a tzaddik. Yov bin Surya, He's a tzaddik. These are righteous people. Neither side here is Hellenist. Far from it. These are God-fearing Jews. But they have a machloket. They have a dispute between them. And that is, who's going to rule? David or Saul's son Ishboshet? So you're not really fighting for Torah. Both sides believe in Torah. And by the way, David doesn't get involved in this. It's his captain of the host, Yoav, who gets involved. Because David really is for unity and shalom. And he didn't want to go to war against the house of Saul. He didn't want a civil war over this. On the other hand, he's not a friar. He made sure that he was king over the tribe of Yehuda. In that respect, he's calls it a split. You could say he's against unity. You can argue, hey, if he's so much for unity, why did he insist on being king over one tribe when all the rest of the Jewish people are going after Avner and Ishboshet? So yeah, David's not going to go to civil war, but he's not going to forfeit the kingdom either for the sake of of some false shalom and unity. And I say false because he really was anointed to be the next king, but he's not going to push it. So what I'm trying to show here, there's a balance and there's no automatic answer to this. It depends on the situation. And if you look at the other side today, and if you listen to their rhetoric and what they believe in, they don't want a trace of Judaism in this country. To them, it's something primitive because they're liberal and they're woke. So yeah, they're kind of on the hell in his side. So when we throw around slogans like unity and avat chinam, let's do it a little more carefully and try to get direction from our holy scriptures. And so let's get back to our story with Yoshafat and Ahab. According to the rules we set down, we spoke a moment ago how Yoshafat, king of Yehuda, allies himself to Ahab, king of Israel. So why was it wrong? Because Ahab is leading a kingdom of idol worship. And that's why Yoshafat, the king of Judea, was rebuked for his association with Ahab. And Yoshaphat 
shouldn't have any part of him. And that's what the prophet tells Yoshafat. The prophet tells Yoshafat, in the name of Hashem, why do you join those who hate me? So, Ahavat Chinam, it's forbidden, just like Sinat Chinam is forbidden. And so again, we see in the Tanakh, many, many civil wars. Some are wrong, some are right. Depends on the situation. So let's not paint with a broad brush and babble words about unity with people we have nothing to unify around. Before I get to the Torah portion and talk a little bit about this coming Tuba'av, I wanted to talk about something that really bothers me, and I'm sure it bothers you too, and that's how these smartphones, the cell phones, have turned our kids into zombies. I'm sure you all noticed that. I mean, I know everybody's on their phones, but when you see young kids who never knew anything else, it's so sad. The phone is a part of their anatomy. It's like a biological part of their arm. And what gets to me is that I see the young men in the yeshuv who used to go out and play some ball, and they showed potential. They were physical guys, athletes, went out and played. They showed some form. And then the phones came, and they stopped playing because it takes effort to go out into the sun and compete and sweat. It's much more comfortable you sit in an air-conditioned room and play on your phone. Of course, we as kids, we didn't have that option. I remember no matter how hot it was outside, I didn't care. It was burning hot. If there was guys in the schoolyard, I was going to play ball with them because there was nothing else to do. Who cares if it's hot outside? And it's plenty hot right now. But if I heard a basketball dribble, I'd look at my window and see who that is. That's not even an option today. So God help us with all these smartphones and stupid people. And moving now to the Torah portion that we read last week. This past Shabbat, we read Parshat Vetchanan, where Moshe pleads with Hashem with 550 different prayers, pleading with him to let him enter the land of Israel. He so much wants to enter the land of Israel. And it's almost heartbreaking to read the Midrashim, how badly he wants to enter the land. And Hashem's just not going to let it happen. And it just makes you realize how lucky we are in this generation that we're in the land of Israel, breathing its air and eating its fruits. And we merited what Moshe Rabbeinu didn't merit, to live in the land of Israel. And so how fortunate we are and how lame the excuses are of those outside the land who say, well, the land of Israel, you know, it's very secular and very Hellenist and all that. I mean, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't care. When Moshe Rabbeinu was pleading with Hashem to enter the land, I mean, what was here then? Canaanites? and all their idol worship, and all their drek. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't care about that. He just wanted to enter the land and breathe its air. And think of all the tzaddikim throughout the years, through tremendous hardships, came to the land of Israel, whether it was the Ramchal and the Ramban, and it was dangerous. And the Ramchal ended up dying. He picked up an illness in the land of Israel, and he died at a young age. But just like Moshe Rabbeinu, this was their dream. It was their taiva. Their passion was to live in the land. So for Jews outside the land, especially religious Jews who know this, what excuse can you possibly have not to come when you see how badly Moses wanted to enter the land and all the tzaddikim through the generations, through the most difficult of conditions? I mean, much worse than it is today. And along these lines, this week, a couple of days from now, is Tuba'av, the 15th of Av. And it's a nice contrast to Tisha B'Av, which was a very solemn and sad time, Tubab is a happy time. And it has the character of a minor festival. You don't say Tachanum. And so what's so special about Tubab? What does it commemorate? 
What are the joyous events in our history that fell on Tubaav? So the first thing is that it's the date on which the generation of the wilderness stopped dying after 40 years of dying in the desert that stopped on Tubaav. It is on the date of Tubaav that it was permitted intertribal marriage, marriage amongst the different tribes. It is the date on which those massacred at Beitar were brought for burial. And it was also the date when Hoshea ben Ella, the king of Israel, removed the blockades that Yeravam ben Nevat had constructed to prevent the people from ascending to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festivals. And I want to concentrate on that. The event I just mentioned here, Hoshea ben Ella, who was the last king of Israel of the 10 tribes, he removed the blockades to Jerusalem. That is the very first king of Israel, Yeravam ben Nevat, he set up these blockades so the Jews from the 10 tribes won't make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the holidays. He didn't want Jews going to Jerusalem. It would take away from his kavod because they would be acknowledging the kings of Yehuda. And it stayed that way during the entire era of the 10 tribes that they were blocked from going to Jerusalem. So the joyous occasion here is that Hosea ben Ella, he opened it up. He opened up the gates so the Jews could make the pilgrimage. But the scary thing is this, Hosea ben Ella, he was the last king of the 10 tribes. Why? Because it was during his time that Assyria came and exiled the 10 tribes. It was under his watch. Hosea ben Ella, he was the king of the 10 tribes, the king of the kingdom of Israel, of the Northern kingdom, when Assyria threw us out of here and the 10 tribes, they haven't returned ever since. So you can ask, why should it happen under the watch of Hosea ben Ella? He was one of the better kings. He opened up the doors to Jerusalem. He stopped the blockades. We even celebrate that on Tubaav. Why of all times during his tenure should the exile of the 10 tribes happen? And the answer is this, because after Hosea ben Ella allowed the Jews to go to Jerusalem, they didn't go. They didn't go because they were used to it already, because they were already used to not going. They had their calves in Bethel and Dan, and they didn't make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, even though he opened the gates. And so the culpability switched to them. Up until that point, you could say, well, well, what do you want from them? They couldn't make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They were blocked. But now that they weren't blocked and Hosea ben Ella opened the doors for them, at that point, they became culpable. Now it's their problem. It's their fault. He opened the doors for you and you still didn't go. So now you have no more excuses. And Hashem brought the exile of the 10 tribes during that time, during the kingdom of Hosea ben Ella. Where am I going with this? It's just like what's going on with the Jews in the exile today. It used to be really hard to make Aliyah. So you got an excuse. And even if you made Aliyah, you're living under the Turks. It's no fun. But now the doors have been open. It's really easy to get here now. Just got to hop aboard a LL flight. There's no more excuses. So now the Jews in the exile, they're culpable. And now the blame is upon them for not making the move because it's so easy now to make Aliyah. And if you still don't do it, well, that's on you now. So that's my Aliyah pitch. Hope to see you in Israel real soon. Don't forget to give me a call. I'll take you around the Shomron where the 10 tribes used to walk around before they got exiled. And by the way, the whole story of the exile of the 10 tribes in the Shomron, that's in the Bible, Kings 2. 
And you can tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google that and learn the Bible the way it's supposed to be taught, with Jewish sources, with the great Bible commentators, Rashi, the Radak, Mitzudat David, Malbi, Mabarbanel, and we bring the fabulous commentary of Rabbi Meir Kahana too. So tune into that, and I'll be back next week, same time, same station.